Amen. Thanks, worship team, and good morning, church. It's good to see you all. What about a beautiful morning coming in here with that sun shining? Man, what a beautiful thing to worship together. The God where sin abounded, His grace and mercy abounded all the more. Amen. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the elders here at Peninsula Grace. If I haven't met you yet, man, I'm glad to be here uh, serving and, and honoring and worshiping the name of Jesus together. Um, we're in Acts 19 this morning, and if you've been following us, you're like, wait a second, Frankino, you did Acts 17 last week. You skipped the chapter, and you're very observant. So we are actually going to do Acts 18 next week. Acts 19 lines up with the, uh, the, af- the potluck we're going to be talking about today on spiritual gifts. And so uh, why didn't we just do that next week, you might ask? Great question. It's Mother's Day. And we knew trying to have a potluck on Mother's Day, you know, I knew I'd be in trouble with at least two mothers. And so we're going to kind of go away from that. So anyway, Acts 19 this morning, uh, partnership with God. How many of you like food? How many of you love food, right? There, I am with you on that. In fact, I have learned that I love food a little too much. That on the uh, scale of lo- scale of loves scale, uh, that I love Jesus, uh, and then I would say I love Jill, and, and, and now Lucy, and then shortly after that list, it's Dairy Queen Oreo ice cream cake. Like that is that is, and all of those people were at my birthday party a couple weeks ago, right? And so uh, I could just man, I could Garfield that whole thing, right? Put some Sour Patch Kids on there, and it's ball game. So, what, but what I have found is I have actually have seen that in my heart I have an unhealthy relationship with food, and I, and I, I came to find a, a severe lack of self-control in that area. Just about five, six years ago, I was 90 pounds heavier than I am right now, and, and I saw the way that that was affecting my day-to-day health. Now, there were things that I could do about that. I literally threw away two garbage bags full of carbs and Satan sugars, right? I knew I had to start today. I started eating a paleo diet. I, uh, goodbye, poor Dairy Queen ice cream cake. And, and recently, I started a daily calorie count uh, where I had some needed restrictions for me. And I invited uh, some of my discipleship partners to, to into, into that relationship to ask me how it's going and to be transparent and open with them on that front. Because really... The heart of the issue wasn't the weight. The heart of the issue wasn't actually food. I was medicating. I was finding pleasure, immediate gratification in, in this comfort food and not in my God. And it always for us comes back to the heart of worship. Worthship. And I was, I was looking to something for, for my worth, for, to meet my needs more than, than God himself. What I really needed, if I was really going to see a heart change, that's self-control. And self-control is a fruit of the who? Fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not a fruit of the Justin. This ultimately couldn't just come by my self-effort. This was a heart transformation that would need and require the inward working, outward work of the Holy Spirit by faith in Christ in, in me. So as you can see in this process there were things that I could do things that I should do but then there were things that only God himself could do in and through me you and I have been invited into a partnership with God in this partnership we would say a partnership is a relationship between two or more people to do work right a trade or a business now what I'm not suggesting here is that we've gone like equal partnership into a business with God we're gonna do a lemonade stand he's like I really need you Frankino if we're gonna pull this thing off we're not talking about that kind of a partnership 
But the Bible mysteriously, wonderfully shows us that God has invited us to participate in what he's doing here on earth. Like back at creation. He created us in his image and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with my glory. We are representing his reign here on earth as it is in heaven. Like, what a beautiful responsibility. And then in his rescue plan, he, how is he going to go out and make disciples and, and, and reach the people that Jesse was talking about? Through his church, through the body as we go and make disciples. Like we're doing this with God. And there are in this partnership, there are things that we are called to do, our part, but then we're going to find, man, there are things that only God himself can accomplish. And the things that we do, we do by grace, through faith. And that's why he gets all the glory for it. This morning, we're going to look at this relationship. What are, what are some, what's our part? What's God's part? But we're going to start with looking at, in Acts 19, how is this partnership actually formed in the, in the first place? So if, if you've been with us in the book of Acts, we, we've been calling this witnesses of his resurrection. The, the book of Acts is about, and, and if, if you're new with us, we do have fill in the blanks in the bulletin. Bulletins are out in the, in the, on that little white table in the foyer. Um, so we, we said that, that this is about the people who had eyewitnessed Jesus' resurrection, taking the good news that he has resurrected, and, and remember the outline of the book. They started in Jerusalem, then they've gone to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And this good news is that Jesus has opened up the portal back into relationship, partnership with God. And how did he do that? Well, our part, what we're seeing in this partnership, is that we are called to believe in the person of Jesus. We read that three chapters ago. What did he tell the jailer? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You'll be reconciled to your Father. And what did, what's God's part? Well, he's the one that saved us, Right? He's the one that did the work of salvation, that he gifted us, gave us his Holy Spirit. Remember, we called him portable Jesus, that he put the Holy Spirit in us to resurrect us, cleanse us, indwell us, and now we are two-legged temples walking around on this earth. And we keep that in mind as we pick it up here in the story on Paul's third missionary journey. So this is his third of three missionary journeys we're going to see in the book of Acts. And, and we called Paul and Silas here, missionary Batman and Robin. And, and we find them in Ephesus this morning where we pick up our story in Acts uh, chapter 19. Now, next week, uh, we go back to Acts 18. We'll finish up the second journey and then start here in this third journey. So OCDers, chill out. All right, so verse one. Uh, Paul traveled to the interior regions and came to Ephesus. This is where we're going to be this morning. He found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Into what then were you baptized, he asked them. Into John's baptism, they replied. Now, I love this. They're like, the Holy Spirit? Wait, what? Like, there's a third part of the Trinity? Like, can you imagine, like, so wait, the, the Holy Spirit's coming? Like, you, you know when you miss out, there's like, there's a, there's a sixth Jurassic Park already? I had no idea, right? How we keep up with that? And, and, and to keep in mind, this is, this is 2,000 years ago. They don't have Facebook, right? They're not, they don't learn news 18 seconds after it happens. Refresh. Is the Messiah here yet? Refresh. Is he here yet? Refresh. Like, here in Alaska, how we always get the movies, like, a month after everybody else gets to see them. Um, they're, they're a little behind here, these guys. And, and, and you remember... So God sent, um, God sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus by calling the people to repent. That means change their mind. To change their mind about how they saw their sin and to be ready to embrace the coming Messiah rescuing king. Now, some of these followers of John are here in this story. They are disciples, 
But who have they been baptized by? They've been been baptized by John, it says. So they have not yet heard, and we don't know how much they know about Jesus who's come, but they've clearly not gotten the full story. That the the Jesus, the, the Messiah that he was pointing to has actually come and has died for them, has risen, and now has gifted the Holy Spirit to them. They hadn't heard this yet. And, and, but we see, as soon as they hear that good news, look at what happens. Verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, what we just talked about, telling the people they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. And he's saying, that Jesus has arrived. He's here. And when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Their hearts were ready to receive the rescuer, and once they found out he was there, like they just embrace him. We will follow him. Now, this is where it gets weird. Verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. So, real talk. Anybody, when you got saved, uh, did, anybody, did anybody in here immediately start speaking in tongues and prophesying? Maybe. Okay, all right. I'm in good company, right? It didn't, didn't happen to me either, right? So, so we know that, that that doesn't always happen. Now, wait a second. That happened to them. It didn't happen to us. Is there a problem there? Did we not get the full helping of the Holy Spirit when we got saved? Or, or what is, what's going on here? Remember, remember we said the book of Acts is a birth story, how the church was born. And stories are telling us what happened not then, not necessarily what's going to happen to us now. They, they tell us what occurred then, not necessarily what we are then supposed to do. So when Jill and I talk to Josiah and Ryan, who are expecting a child in September, and we tell them our birth story, we're not telling them how their birth story is going to go. It's probably going to go differently. And we're not telling them what they have to do, right? Didn't, learn, didn't know all the controversy surrounding babies and how you have them, what you're supposed to do and not do. And if you do this, they'll end up in prison. And like, it's, it's controversial, right? <laughs> Chill out. Um, but in, in this in this case, God is doing something very specific in this story. He's not necessarily saying, this is what's always going to happen. Now, in Acts, there are several major transition points. And we see some of these transition points marked as, as the gospel, it, the confirmation of the gospel going out. And the spirit is indwelling people. This is a brand new thing. And so three major times in Acts, we see tongues and prophecies verifying what has happened, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We see this happening back in Acts chapter 2, when the OG apostles, the original ones, get the Holy Spirit. And what's happening? All these other Jews have gathered to celebrate in Jerusalem, and they're hearing the gospel in their own tongue, and it starts to rapidly multiply. And then in Acts chapter 10, we see this, another major transition where we're going from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria toward the ends of the earth. And it's showing, man, these Gentiles are included into Jesus' new family. And this, this sign, the tongues and prophecies, verified to the Jews. And the same God is welcoming in the, the Gentile people. And the same spirit that indwells us indwells them. We are one family in Christ. And then in Acts chapter 19... We're seeing an important link here that those who had been baptized in the name of John anticipating the Messiah, man, that is the the Messiah that has come. And and we see this unity between John's followers and leading them by faith to embrace the one that John was pointing to. Now, it's interesting, these these gifts, these are both speech-related. So languages, the word there, the Greek is glossa. This is not ecstatic utterances where they're just babbling. These are real languages. So like we saw in Acts chapter 2, the languages were flowing. And there are many different takes on what the gift of prophecy is, but we know it involves speaking God's word. 
So both of these are language gifts that were used to ripple out the word of God that prevails, as we'll see at the end of our story today. But important to see here, in the rest of Acts, and you read the rest of the New Testament, nowhere is it taught that a believer must speak in tongues and prophesy to be saved or to prove that they're saved. It's not in there. These, these signs, these tongues and prophecies, I believe, were to verify this movement from the Old Testament where we were following, they were, the Jewish people were following the law of Moses to a, the new covenant that God had promised. Remember Jeremiah and Ezekiel? Ezekiel? Uh, they, they said that there was this new covenant coming where he said, God said, I'm going to put my very spirit in you because what I'm going to do is inward, not just outward. Remember, with, like with my eating, it wasn't just about outward conformity or behavior modification. What was needed was inward heart transformation. And that's something that only God can do. In our partnership with God, what we're called to do is place our faith in him by grace. Remember, remember the, the, the letter to the Ephesians? Well, this is where we're at right now, right? We're in Ephesus, and this is the people who he will later write to. And in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we know the famous verse, right? You're saved by grace through faith and not from yourselves. You didn't do this. You didn't earn this. It's God's gift. He gave you by his mercy that's more his spirit, his salvation, not from works so that no one can boast. There's nothing we can do. And so speaking tongues and prophesying is not, are not works that we use to earn God's gift. He gave it to us freely. But what we're going to see is from the point of salvation, there are things that he calls us to do by faith. Let's look at the next part of the story for that. Our part, what can we do? What, what are we called to do as believers? Verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, taking the disciples, and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So Paul continues his mission trip here. He goes to the synagogue, as he always starts, and he preaches to these Jews. Now, some of them believed, but many of them rejected him. And so he moves down the road to the hall of Tyrannus. And it's in this hall that he preaches. Next verse, it says, this went on for two years. He preaches in this hall for daily for two years. By far his longest gig preaching the gospel in one location. Why does he do that? Why does he hunker down here for two years? The very next part of the verse answers our question. So that... All the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Now we're like, wow, all of Asia. Don't think today. We think of like, wow, we went all the way to like modern day China and Indonesia and the Philippines. That's not what he's saying. At that time, the province of Asia was that kind of, we'll call it salmon colored. Is that right? Um, in, there, in the middle there. It's a province. So like think a state. So he's saying that they had opportunity to hear all throughout the province. And he started very strategically here in Ephesus. I know you can't really read the word there, but there's Ephesus on the coast. And kind of like, that was their New York City. This was their biggest and most important city in the entire province. And so Paul is very strategically starting in the Big Apple, the Big Apollo, if you will, because I, okay. Um, so it ripples from the big city to all the smaller towns in, in the province. Very strategic work that the Holy Spirit's doing through Paul. Now, this hall of Tyrannus, this is a place where public teaching would happen just in, the, in their community there. Their normal teacher, presumably Tyrannus, that's why it was named after him, would preach until about 11 a.m. 
And, and what, we, what we found in looking at the historical records is that Paul probably preached from like somewhere between 11 and 4 p.m. every single day. This was the hottest part of the day. So kind of like today in a lot of cultures, they would take their siesta, that, they, that people would come and get in the shade, and Paul saw this opportunity to preach the gospel. Now what's interesting is Paul is, you go to chapter 20, and he says, I've been making tents, or, or maybe be, even better, working with leather. That was his job um, that, he would, that, he, that he continued to do at this time, which means that Paul was using his nap time from making tents to preach the gospel for five hours. That does not sound like a restful nap to me, right? Now, what is Acts 19 teaching us here? He's teaching us that Paul is getting after it, and Paul's working, and he's working hard. Like, he's not just skipping through towns, like throwing Jesus flowers, like, well, if you wanted it, great. If not, great, and I'm going to the next town. Like, he, he hunkers down, like literal blood, sweat, and tears, right? He's being persecuted, stoned, beaten, blood. He, sweat and tears are being poured into this. We see a bivocational ministry going on here. He's making disciples by day and making tents by night. He's Bible Batman, right? Like, Paul's working, and he's working hard, and he's working selflessly, This is a picture of what it looks like to partner with God in his mission to make disciples of all nations. Because, guys, here's my concern. We hear, like, we're saved by grace and not by works. And that's true, right? That's the gospel. But I I think when we hear that, we go, sweet. So that means I don't have to work, right? And we just just become allergic to working. Because we're not saved by works. That's true. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says. But then what is the very next verse? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to rest on our divine laurels. No, for good, good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We're not Pinocchio laying on our bed every morning going, not saved by works. So until the Holy Spirit, Geppetto, picks me up and moves me around and moves my mouth, in bed I stay and in bed I lay, right? That's not being spirit-led, that's being lazy. Notice Paul is working, and he's working hard. He's making tents to provide income for himself. He said, I don't want to be a burden to other people. Like, I, I could get money from you, but I don't want to freeload. I, I want to put you out, so I'm going to work. And then he preaches the gospel day in and day out. Paul is doing the hard work of being with people. He's healing people. He's sacrificing his own time and energy to serve others in love. They're planning strategic trips around the empire. And what cities are we going to hit? Paul's got all his spreadsheets out. Like he's getting after it. So what does this look like for us today? Like, listen, we don't just stumble into becoming like Jesus. We don't just accidentally make disciples and learn more about God and his word. It just takes intentional work. As a church, we plan. We we have a 10-year vision of what we're saying. So this is what God's called us to do? So how do we actually do that? How do we carry that out? And we work. We study his word. Like we send missionaries like Jesse. We, we, we sacrifice. Love is work. Like there are people right now over there working with your kids. That's work, especially for some of your kids. No, where's that number flashing? We, what's, so let me ask you, man, what, like what's one small step? What's one small thing that God's calling you to do? What work is he calling you to this week? Maybe it's just picking up the phone and calling that friend that doesn't know Jesus to go to coffee, go to lunch together. 
Maybe it's, man, I, I'm, not, I'm not digging into God's word and learning about him and people around me. I'm, I'm not doing the hard work of serving the people around me. Just let the Holy Spirit press in on a good work he's calling you to do today. Paul's showing us here, man, just like the Jesus we follow, like we are called to love and serve the people around us. But there are things we're called to do, but there are things that only God himself can do. Now, this is where the story gets super weird, okay? Verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So Paul is a leather worker. So this, these uh, face cloths, they're actually referring to like a sweatband that he would have had around his head in the hot uh, sun. The apron, uh, really more like a belt where his tools would hang off of him. And so it's saying even those things that he wore when he was leather working, like if people touched that, they would get healed. Like, this is incredible, right? Imagine LeBron James taking off his headband and pop it into the stands, and a 14-year-old with acne catches it in just, like, clear skin, right? Like, this is incredible. Paul's got power. And I think in some ways, like, that Jesus' Jesus's words in John 14 are coming to fruition here. What did he say to his disciples? That truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. Jesus healed, and they're doing them. And in fact, he says he'll do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father, and he'll say four verses later, I'm, I'm going to give you my spirit. So where Jesus, they, they'd touch Jesus, or Jesus would touch them, even just touching the things that Paul had touched would heal them. Like we see this amazing work, but, but notice the important detail here. Who's actually doing the healing? It says God was performing extraordinary, extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands. Paul is fully aware he is not the healer. God is the healer that's working through the vessel named Paul. And what we see here then is a, a left turn, viewer discretion advised. Now some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, those guys again, uh, also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them so that they ran out of that house naked and wounded. All right, so this is normal, right? Like, isn't this what happened to you yesterday? So we... Ephesus was a hotbed for magic and sorcery. People were trying all the time to manipulate the spirit world through these ritual acts, through like paraphernalia, like think of like a, a lucky rabbit's foot type of a thing, and these magical formulas and incantations, right? Wingardium Leviosa. So sadly, the, the Jewish people themselves have got sucked into this. Like look, the high priest's sons are, 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 have become these traveling exorcists. Now, at first blush, you might actually go, well, wait a second, why was this bad? It says that they're driving out evil spirits, and it even says they're doing it in, in the name of Paul's Jesus. So casting, didn't Jesus say, if you're not for us, you're against us? Like, why is it bad they're casting out evil spirits in the name of Jesus, presumably? A couple things to zero in on here. So, first of all, it, it calls them exorcists. And exorcists at the time, by definition, were ones who used formulas of conjuration, to conjure, uh, for expelling demons. This was not a method that was according to the way of God. This is not how we dealt with the spirit world, not how we deal with it today. These guys had simply watched God healing by Paul's headband, and they're like, whoa, let's use Paul's guy. 
And so they simply throw the name of Jesus onto their pile of incantations to do their bidding. But notice it don't work. Verse 15, the evil spirit answered, I, know, I love this. I know Jesus, and I even recognize Paul, but you are? From the mouth of a demon, we learn the valuable lesson that Jesus will not allow his name to be reduced to a magical formula. You remember the Ten Commandments? What he's, do not use the name of God in vain. Jesus is not just magical pixie dust that we get to sprinkle on people to make them fly, to make our life go the way we want it to go. I love the way Andrew McLaren summarizes what's going on here. He says, these exorcists had no personal union with Jesus. This was not a relationship that they're abiding in the vine. They're using him. To them, he was only Jesus whom Paul preached. Did you see that detail? That, this, is, this is Paul's Jesus. That's how they call it. That's how they name him. And he said they spoke his name tentatively as an experiment and imitatively. So they see this worked with Paul, so let's just rip that off and use it for our own ends. And this is key. He says to command in the name of Jesus was an appeal to Jesus to glorify his name and exert his power. And so when the speaker had no real faith in the name of Jesus or the power of Jesus, there was no answer. Why? Because there really was no appeal. They're not depending on the name of Jesus personally. In Christ, guys, we have the power to bid the tempter flee. Like Satan ain't got nothing on us. He was defanged at the cross. But only for those who have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's only for those in Christ who invoke his name in humble faith. Those are the only ones that are in a correct position to see God drive out demons and what's the result? Verse 16, then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, and seven on one, <laughs> he overpowered them all and prevailed against them, so they ran out of the house naked and wounded. When this became known to everyone that lived in Ephesus, well, look at what happens. Both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. Look at what God does. He honors the name of Jesus. He lifts it high. That it is not a magical spell to use. It is a name to honor as the king of the universe. This is the name of Jesus. What a wonderful, what a powerful, what a beautiful name. We've got to ask ourselves today. Let's, let's zero this in on our own hearts. Am I using the name of Jesus or am I honoring the name of Jesus one of the ways I think we can subtly use Jesus' name is just to see it as a lucky charm to, for my own agenda. That we can say, well, I'll go to Jesus' building once a week if that makes my doctor's prognosis go the way I want it to go. Or, or maybe I'll just, if I read my Bible more, if I pray more, if I listen to only 93.7, right, Christian station, then the sun will shine and I'll get what I really want, what I really, what are we saying there? What I really believe I need. And even, we can even do good things for bad reasons, and they're still bad. Like, they're, they're casting out evil spirits, right? But if we put a Jesus sticker on our own attempts at manipulation, that's not honoring to him. We honor Jesus' name through a personal relationship with him. We say, Jesus, like, you're my greatest treasure. Like, what I want most is you. And what I know is most, most needed in this world is for people to see you rightly. And so I'm going to trust in you to do what you tell me to do. Because Jesus is not my errand boy. 
to do my bidding. Jesus is not my personal genie here to grant my wishes. He is my king that I bow to in respect and faith and obedience. And in our partnership with Jesus, he gets to tell us what to do, not vice versa. And we obey by faith. For example, there are things he's going to do in us when, when we do by faith a couple things here that we see in the last couple verses. Verse 18, and many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. So people who had been all caught up in this magic. While many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So this is incredible here to watch God lift high the name of Jesus in Ephesus. And what God wants to do in and through us, what only he can do, he alone has the power for us to break the bondage of our past and for us to live freely into the future. But there's two principles here that we see. First of all, there's a confession of sin. Look what happens. They're confessing and disclosing their practices, literally announcing they're declaring, I did this, and it was wrong. There's a transparency here of their sin. And we must become transparent, honest, confessing. That means to agree with God, to see it the way he sees it. And, 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 and now this is in appropriate times and places. We're not saying that to be open about our sin means to put a sign on our chest and walk around kind of scarlet letter style and say, I struggle with anger, right? I have a lust issue. That's not what he's saying here. This is a heart that confesses to God, first and foremost, but also a heart that is willing to confess to his body. James 5 says there is healing available for us, but one of the specific steps is to confess our sins one to another, his body. There's a power in naming the specific sin or struggle that needs to be healed. God, I suffer from anxiety. God, I've got anger problems. God, I see my lustful heart. God, I see the apathy on a daily basis in me. Because if I don't come to the doctor with my specific disease, that's, that's what I do, right? I come honestly, God, I need healed. Then God can't do what he wants to do, heal us. There's a confession of sin that's necessary here. And then we see a change of practice, a change of practice. Look what happens in verse 19. Well, many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everybody. We're back to youth camp, right? Burning those secular CDs. Goodbye, Nirvana. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In today's money, because you probably aren't sitting there doing the math on the silver pieces, um, that's about $6 million dollars a lot of expensive magic books, right? And so they burn those. And this is costly, but it is worth it. It is worth it. Part of breaking from our past and changing for the future is to remove the temptations, to change the habits, to change the lifestyle. When I knew I needed to change my approach to food, it involved throwing garbage bags full of food away. It involved changing my diet. It involved counting calories. Maybe you have a lust issue and you need your spouse to password that device. Maybe you need to go back to a flip phone. We don't actually need smartphones to survive today. Like you throw that away, you'll still be breathing tomorrow, okay? Maybe it's severely changing the friend group that you're hanging out with, the way that you spend your time. Maybe it's checking into AA or even better, Celebrate Recovery. It's, Jesus said to do whatever is necessary. He says it's cut off the hand, gouge out the eye. That's better than being separated from your God. But remember, these things that we're doing, we're doing by faith. 
Hebrews 11. God said, Abraham, trust me. And by faith, Abraham left his home and went to a completely different land where he didn't know anybody. That's a radical step of faith. He told Noah, there's a flood coming. And, and Noah believed that his God was speaking truth and for him. And so he built an ark. What is he calling us to do by faith? We, please hear me on this. We do not do these things to earn our salvation. We do these things. We obey by faith, trusting that as we do them, God will do what only he can do. Because if God doesn't do the miracle inwardly, if it's just behavior modification, we're just painting a corpse. That's not life. But what Jesus' actual teaching was, when he's saying cut off the hand, cut out the eye, is to remove whatever is necessary to be removed and what ultimately needed to change in us. It was, our old, it was our own heart. And so that circumcision done by the Holy Spirit was to remove that old flesh, to remove that sinful heart, and replace it with a new heart to give us the very life of Jesus himself. That's holiness. It's Christ in me. And it will work itself from the inward toward the outward. So we do these things in motion. We walk by faith. So super practical. Like if, if there's a person in your life, man, you, sh- you know I can't love this person on my own. So love is the fruit of the Spirit. So I say, Father, I need you to cultivate a heart of love toward that person in me. And then by faith, we pick up the phone and call him. We go and have that meeting with him. We serve them, trusting as we do what he's called us to do, love them as ourselves, he's going to work in us what he's told us to do. Say, God, I know I need to change the way that I see the opposite sex in my life. And so maybe by faith, you smash that cell phone and go back to smoke signals, right? Do what you got to do. And as I take these steps, would you produce in me your spirit's fruit of faithfulness to my spouse and to not objectify people, but to see them as the image bearer that you created them to be? Verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord, what's the result? The word of the Lord spread and prevailed. I love this. Like Luke's point here is those books of spells, those false messages were destroyed. And the good word, the the true message that Jesus has risen, that Jesus has rescued us, that that Jesus reigns, that cannot be destroyed. That that will not return void. The word of God will prevail. Luke wrote Acts to show how the spoken word, the good news about the living word who became flesh and dwelt among us, would ripple out through this ragtag little band of apostles that the word of God would triumph over the powers of evil. And what we see here is the coming to fruition is what Jesus said. I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The word of God is prevailing. It started in Acts 1 and here we are in Acts 19 and it's continuing to triumph. And if we're going to see resurrection life change in our hearts, in our church, in our community, it is only going to come by doing what we can do, which is to declare his good news, and to watch what God alone can do, which is raise the dead, set the captive free, and shed the light of Jesus' kingdom into this domain of darkness. Those seven sons of Sceva, man, they were confronted by one little demon. And what did they find? They were powerless. They found themselves naked and wounded on the run. Listen, just like those evil spirits, our own compulsions our addictions, our habits, the old way, that's more powerful than we are in ourselves. And if we attack them like the sons of Sceva did, 
they're going to laugh and go, I know Jesus, but who are you? We need, listen, our only hope is in the good news, the word of God, because no other power can overcome our destructive habits and sustain us with life to partner with God and be who he created us to be by his grace and therefore for his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, you have invited us into this good work to go into the world and announce the news that Jesus is King. Jesus is Savior. Father, you've called us to love you and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we are painful. I can speak for myself. I am painfully aware that I cannot do that in my own strength. So, Father, I pray that we would be a people that by your grace would learn to trust your heart that you're for us, that everything you've called us into, you have supplied, that we are forgiven and accepted. And it's out of that position as your sons and daughters that we can operate. We don't got to earn your approval. We don't have to earn your, your, your rescue. Like we just simply receive it by faith. And that we would go and do the work that you've called us to do by faith. That anybody here this morning would lean into what the Holy Spirit's leading them to do today. To, to do the work to get into your word, like to go and be salt and light in their homes and in the communities uh, that we live in, that, that your word will prevail based on your power, on your spirit that indwells us, that we would by faith do what we do so that you can do what only you can do. Father, would you do that work in our hearts as we take the next step that you've called us into into this beautiful partnership with you for now and then into eternity. We pray these things in your son's beautiful, powerful, wonderful name. And all God's people said, amen.